Thank you, praise team. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Holy Father, Heavenly Father in heaven, we praise you for your great, your great in your sovereignty, in your kindness. Although we sinners have ruined your world, but you are faithful, you are kind. You promise to restore and reclaim your kingdom. You promise to save us. Thank you so much. In the meantime, you promise to be with us so that we can take refuge in you in this broken world. Though we go through troubles in our lives, the economic hardship, the COVID, the wars that's going on in this world, we know that we can take refuge in you. And we have hope in you because Christ will come back one day. And also, Christ promised to be with us and to help us in time of trouble. Thank you that you are good to us. And we confess, Father, that we are unworthy sinners. We are polluted by sin. We are marred by our weakness. But we thank you that you have come. You have sent Jesus to die for our sins on the cross. We could dwell in his perfect atonement, his perfect sacrifice for us. Let us rejoice every day in it. Every morning we could see that you are, your mercy is new every day. May, us, may we rest. May we take joy and take pride in what Christ has done for us every single day. May we not boast in our righteousness, in our own goodness, in our accomplishments, that we will only boast in you. Help us now to live by faith, not by sight. Help us use us, though we are weak, frail, and still sinful in many ways. May you grace empower us so that we may be used to further your kingdom, uh, to tell others about your great love, to pray for others, and to love them as you have loved us. Father, we commit this time to you. We commit the rest of this worship time to you. May we continue in our worship through the preaching of your word. Open our hearts. Help us be humble. Let us pull all distractions away so that we may focus on your word. That you may increase and we may decrease that you may be praised and worshiped and not us, that your kingdom may be built, not our kingdom. May you strengthen your servant. May I preach the word well, accurately, with passion. And may you open the hearts of believers here and those who listen online to rejoice in you, to know you better, to love you, and to obey you and take joy in obedience and the hope that is coming when Christ will come back and make everything perfect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, we are continuing our series in the preaching of the Gospel of Matthew. We took a break from it, and now we're coming back to the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Gospel of Matthew. So please turn your Bible to Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. Now, this passage that we're going through is within, obviously, the 
the whole chapter of Matthew 24. And this whole chapter is about the end time, the time when Jesus will come back and to reclaim and restore and to finish his mission on earth. Now, why is it important that we study the end time? Does it have any effect on us living right now? It does. There are many important reasons why we must study the end time. And I'll just give you three reasons. The first reason is because Jesus taught about it. And he taught often about it. So if, teach, if Jesus teaches it and he teaches it often, then it's very important for us because his word is the most authoritative. We must come to worship him and listen to what he has to say to us, not Primarily, what God, we should not come primarily to have God to listen to us, but we ought to listen to Him. Secondly, it's important that we study because it helps us to live for eternity. When we study the end time, it reminds us that this world is not permanent, it's passing. The world that's to come is permanent, and we should be living for that permanent, eternal world, and not live for this perishing world. We must walk in faith, not by sight. That is why we must study the Word of God. And it's also important that we know how to correctly respond to the end time. We must know how to live correctly in light of the end time. There are so many Christians who do not. Some Christians are so focused and paranoid about the end time that they actually go against what Jesus taught about how to live correctly in light of the end. Some people are so paranoid that they actually isolate themselves, build bunkers, and stop, they stop engaging the communities with the gospel. So we don't want to do that. Now, there are... We want to study the end times because it will help believers to actually prepare to live in the end time. There are important commands that God has given to believers who will experience the tribulation in the end time. And we need to correctly interpret these end time passages and pass down the correct interpretation to the future generations so that those who will experience the end time can live properly in the end time. And we have these commandments right here in this passage today. Now, before we go into our passage, I want to address one thing. There are many different views on the details of what the end time will look like. Uh, there are many different views about the premillennial kingdom. There are people who believe that there are a literally 1,000-year reign of Jesus before his eternal kingdom on earth, uh, the new heaven and new earth. Uh, there's people who don't believe that. They're called amillennialists, and there are those people who are called postmillennialists. And there's also many different views about the timing of the tribulation. Some people believe in pre-tribulation, that we will be Christians will not face the tribulation, will be raptured before the tribulation. Some people believe in mid-tribulation and post-tribulation. And even 
the elders in this church don't agree with all the details, but that's okay. No matter what you believe in, we all can agree that Jesus someday will come back, judge the world, and he will establish his kingdom on earth forever. So we can agree, right? Amen to that. We can agree with that general framework. And yes, we can disagree with some details, and that's fine. That's how God uses us, use these disagreements to grow us in our character in our knowledge, we can, not, we can discuss these uh, details in a respectful, loving manner and uh, help each other to sharpen each other, share each other's interpretation and see which one is the best, the most biblical, that has the most biblical support. So um, we, it's okay to disagree on these details. There are many people whom I love and respect but I disagree with. But it's okay. We can uh, continue to talk about these disagreements because they're not a gospel issue. They're, they're secondary or tertiary issues. But I want to be upfront with you. Um, uh, I am a pre-millennialist and a pre-tribulationist. So I want to try to uh, my best to address all the different views, but I don't have time to answer every objection. So if you have questions for me after the sermon, uh, please come. I'm, I'll be happy to answer all your questions. Now, all right, so let's get into our passage, Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. But before we go into this passage, it's important that we understand the context of this passage. Now, in this passage... The teaching by Jesus on the end time in Matthew 24 was prompted by the disciples' question in verse 3. They asked him, tell us, when will these things be? Now, this is referring to Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple in verse 2. And they didn't just want to stop there. They want to continue to ask about what's going to happen after the destruction of the temple. So they continue in verse 3, ask, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the disciples wanted to know the end times and the second coming of Jesus. Now why did they ask these two questions? It seems like it's out of the blue. Well, the reason why they asked is because in the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books, there are tons of prophecies about the end times. And the reason why they asked about Jesus' second coming is because Jesus said in verse 39, in chapter 23, verse 39, that the Jews will not see, them, see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they knew that he was going to leave and then come back. And that is made also clear in the Gospel of John when Jesus told them that he's going to leave, go to heaven to prepare a place for them, and, they, and he will come back later to get them. So that is why they asked these two questions. So Jesus proceeded to answer the questions by telling them what the world will be like after he departs from the world. And this is in verses 4 to 14. Now notice in this whole chapter, Jesus always uses the second person 
pronoun you. In this case, it's plural in Greek. So he's saying you all, or y'all, if you're from South America, y'all, okay, that's more grammatically correct, actually. Y'all, okay, he's always using y'all here. And the reason why is he's actually not addressing the 12 disciples only. He's actually addressing all believers between the time of his first and second coming. He's addressing us. He tells all of us that what the world will be like after he departs from the world. And the first characterization of this world is that there will be many false messiahs. Many will declare themselves to be the Messiah after he departs. And that is absolutely true throughout the history of the world. It is especially true in the Jewish world. After Jesus departed, almost in every century, there has been at least one Jewish person who declared himself to be the Messiah. And another characterization of the world after Jesus ascends uh, to heaven is that the world will continue to have wars, earthquakes, and famines. And that's not surprising. But what is surprising is that he says, in this world, the gospel will continue to spread. Now, that is the most amazing thing. That is the most astonishing, surprising thing. Because nobody at that time thought that the gospel would spread to the world. Everybody thought that it would die after his crucifixion. Nobody believed in it, even the disciples themselves. Remember the apostle Peter, at one point he basically said, you know, forget this, I'm going back to fishing. What is surprising, astonishing, is that this prophecy was fulfilled and the gospel continued to spread And it continues even today to spread to every corner of the world, even in this country, even in isolated jungles in the area of Papua. So it's absolutely amazing, astonishing, because every prophecy in the Bible will be fulfilled no matter how impossible it may seem at the time or right now. Because God is sovereign, He is faithful. He protects his promises. He will always fulfill his prophecies. Amen? Praise God. Now, in these verses, Jesus actually did not address, did not answer the disciples' question about when the temple will be destroyed exactly. Jesus never, never cared to give a specific, specific date to the disciples. He only gave them descriptions about the future. Now, why did he do that? It's because he wanted them to walk by faith, not by sight. But by looking at history, we know that the temple that he prophesied about being destroyed happened in 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus came and destroyed the temple and conquered Israel. Now, after Jesus destroyed Uh, describe what uh, the world would be like after he ascended to heaven and up to the point of end time. Jesus then proceeded to tell the disciples what the world would be like in the end time, in the last day. 
This is in verses 15 to 33, our passage for today. Now, before we get into our passage, uh, I want to let you know that it is a very important thing that you must understand. In the New Testament, the Bible makes a very clear distinction between last days, plural, and last day, singular. Last days, plural, is referring to the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Uh, This is clear in many passages, many verses in the Bible. For example, in Hebrews 1.3, it says, But in these last days... Right, the time between his first and second coming, that uh, he, that is God Yahweh, has spoken to us by his son. But last day, singular, is referring to a short period of time at the end of last days, at the end of end time. And this is what this passage, passage is describing, is describing the last day, the end time. Jesus talks about the last day in John 6.40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is saying that He will give resurrected body to dead believers in the end time, in the last day. And the last day is also called the day of the Lord, or the day of God, in both Old Testament and New Testament. And the day of the Lord is a short period of time associated with terrible judgment by God and the entire world, an entire mankind, right before Jesus returns. You can look at Joe 1.15. Joe 1.15 says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty comes. The day of the Lord is a major theme in prophetic books in the Bible. And the New Testament also mentions the day of the Lord too. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3 says, For you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, many scholars believe that that last day, the day of the Lord, is actually seven years of tribulation. It's seven years of tribulation because of many prophecies in the rest of the Bible. For example, in Daniel 9, 27. So this is the context of our passage. Our context, our passage is describing the last day, the end time. So let's read our passage for today. Matthew 24, verse 15 to verse 31. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that let those, and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is 
on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house? And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, it never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if, you, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. Now here in this passage is describing two major events in the end time. And if you notice, Jesus here gives one prophecy and two commandments in these verses. And remember, notice that he continues to use the plural second person pronoun, you. But in this case, he's actually addressing Jewish believers in Judea. Jewish believers in Judea who will experience the tribulation in end time. And Judea is the southern part of Israel. And uh, Jerusalem is part of Judea. Verse 15 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. Now, what is this abomination of desolation? The abomination of desolation is referring to Daniel's prophecy about the Antichrist in the end time. In Daniel 11.31, he prophesies about the Syrian king Antiochus, who in 168 B.C. invaded Israel and desecrated the temple. He desecrated the temple by setting up a statue of Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar, an unclean animal. And he proclaimed himself to be God. He even though this prophecy was about Antiochus, the Antichrist will also desecrate the, anti, uh, the, the temple of God in the last days. You see, in the Bible, many prophecies use what happened in the past to predict what's going to happen in the future. 
this is the case here. He tells us what's going to happen in the past, but in the future, the Antichrist will act just like King Antiochus. He's going to desecrate the temple just like him. He's going to proclaim himself as God just like him. This is true of many prophecies in the Bible. For example, in the Bible, the first exodus is always used to prophesy about the end time exodus. It happens all the time. Uh, Isaiah 11, 11 prophesies that in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. It's talking about the end time exodus. To recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from coastland of the city. So in the end time, God will return the Jews to Israel once again, just as he returned the Jews to Israel from Egypt during the first exodus. So the meaning of the prophecy in Matthew 24, 15 is that the Antichrist is going to come and desecrate the temple just like King Antiochus. That's a prophecy that he gives in verse 15. But for believers in Judea, God has given them some instructions ahead of time in order to help them to escape captivity from the invading army. And this is in verses 16 to 22. He gives this command to these Judean believers. He says, once you see the desolation, the abomination of dis- destruction, of desolation by the Antichrist, then you must flee quickly to the mountains of Judea. That's his command. That is his grace to save these believers during the end time. And these mountains are located most likely in the southeast of uh, Jerusalem, particularly in the Dead Sea area. And that's where David also found refuge when Saul tried to kill him. Uh, there's a lot of caves there, so it's a great place to hide. Um, there's a, I have a picture of uh, one of the mountains over there. You could, Amanda, you can press next. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of, in, in the summertime, there's a lot of deserts. So it's a great place to hide. Uh, the escape must be so quick that they cannot even waste one minute to go to the house their field to get provision for the journey, they must leave ASAP. So there will be great trouble in Israel. Great atrocities will be committed by the invaders against the Jews. Jesus says in verse 21, there will be no greater tribulation than this in the history of the world. In the face of the destruction of Jerusalem, Jewish believers must flee ASAP. The tribulation will be so bad that God must cut short the time or else no human beings will survive. Now, this is not the only command that God has given to the Jewish believers. The second command he tells them is that they must hide until the Messiah returns. They should not believe in any Messiah, should 
They should not believe in anyone who claimed to be the Messiah. And this is in verses 23 to 28. Jesus says, flee, hide there. And even if people claim to be Messiahs and perform great miracles, don't believe it. Wait, hide there until Jesus returns. Now, why should believers not believe in these people who proclaim the Messiah? Because when Jesus returns, his return will be a clear global event that everybody will see. He compares his return to lightning flashing in the east and being seen in the west. Because when there's lightning, you will be able to see it outside. You don't need anyone to tell you, oh, there's a lightning. And he compares his return to vultures flying high in the sky over a corpse. When there's a vulture high in the sky, you don't need anybody to inform you that there's a corpse there because you can see the vulture. So it's important for these believers to hide, not believe in anyone, and wait for the global event of Christ's return to happen. And one of the reasons why it's going to be a global event so obvious is because when he returns, there will be millions and millions of angels coming back with him who will pick up believers. This is in verse, verse 31. He says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heavens to another. So there's no need for other people to inform you that he will come back. When he comes back, it will be obvious. You see, studying the end time is important because there are instructions for how believers must live in the end time. If, if, if there are believers who happens to live during the end time, they must flee and hide. So our interpretation is important because lives are at stake. If we believe that this is not for believers, it already happened, then people will think this is not for them and they will be captured by the invaders. There are actually some Christians who believe that all these events prophesied here have already occurred when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, I highly respect them, these Christians. I, I, I love them, but I disagree with them. I think it's very clear that these events are describing the end time events. Because in verse 29, it says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And then in verse, and then verse 30, it says Jesus will return. And, I, and then Jesus says the tribulation during that time will be the worst in the history of mankind. And I find it hard to imagine that the tribulation that happened in 70 A.D., it's going to be greater than the tribulation in the end time. It also be strange for Jesus to tell these believers to flee and hide in the mountain until he returns because after 70 AD, he never returned for thousands of years. So these believers would die in the mountains. It really makes no sense to me. So, yes, we could disagree, uh, disagree on the details of the end times, but we still need to agree that Every little detail is important because life's at stake. If you believe that this is still for the people in the tribulation, then they must obey and save their lives. 
Now, according to um, other biblical prophecies, I believe the desecration of the temple will last about three and a half years. Revelation 11.2 says, But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will tremble the holy city for 42 months. That is three and a half years. And Old Testament also prophesies about the same thing in many places. Daniel 9.27 prophesies, And he, that is the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The translation is actually uh, one set of seven. That's the literal translation, not weeks, not one week. It's one seven. In this case, it's specifically one seven, year, one seven years. That's how the NIV translates it, as one seven. Uh, in this context, we know it's uh, one set of seven years. So he's going to make a strong covenant for one set of seven years, or just seven years. And for half of the week, that is the half of the seven years, that is three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. So I believe that if you add all these verses the desecration of the temple will last three and a half years. So these believers must flee and hide for three and a half years. So after the Antichrist desecrates the temple for three and a half years, after that, Jesus returns. And this is in verses 29 to 31. And this is the second major event in the end time that is prophesied in our passage today. For those believers who flee and hid in the mountains, they must wait for this event. And when he comes back, he will show great wonders in the sky. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light because the sun will have been darkened. Jesus will come back and all the tribes and the nations will mourn for him. They will mourn because they will realize that they have been wrong about Jesus. They have been worshiping the Antichrist, not the true Messiah. They will realize that they have persecuted and killed the people in Jesus. They will realize that they are in big trouble, that Jesus will give to them his righteous judgment punishment on them for their sins. They will realize that their entire world will come to an end permanently, and the kingdom of God will come permanently. That is why they will mourn when they see the Son of Man come and judge them. Now, Jesus does not give graphic details of his judgment in Matthew 24. Those graphic details are given in the book of Revelation. Then it says in verse 31, Jesus will send out his angels to gather believers to himself I believe in Jerusalem because in Zechariah 14, it says that he will descend in Jerusalem. And that is his throne. His throne is at the temple in Jerusalem. He will gather all believers, especially Jewish believers, back to Israel. I believe that this is talking about not the rapture, 
This is talking about the gathering of believers, the Jewish believers, the end-time exodus that is prophesied all over in the Old Testament. The rapture is actually something that will happen uh, before the tribulation. And this is talked about in Matthew 24, 40. It says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. But verse 31 is talking about the gathering of Jewish believers. And this agrees with the prophecies in the Old Testament about the end time exodus. In the end time, the Jews will again be attacked and they will be exiled. But Jesus will return to deliver them and lead them in the end time exodus and lead them back to the land. This is prophesied in Isaiah 11 verse 12. This verse prophesies, He, that is God, Yahweh, will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Zechariah 10a also prophesies, I, that is Yahweh, will whistle for them, that is Jewish believers, and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. So here, verse 31 is talking about the gathering of Judean believers, all the Jewish believers that have been scattered all over the world. This is what Jesus prophesies. He prophesies these two major events, the tribulation in Israel and the return of Jesus. But do you know that these events that were prophesied are actually not new? They were actually prophesied also in the Old Testament. Jesus is not prophesying anything new. It's also prophesied in the Old Testament. Turn your Bible to Zechariah 12. The prophetic book Zechariah was written about 500 B.C., after the Jews returned to Israel from the captivity in Babylon. Zechariah prophesies in chapter 12 that in the end time, surrounding nations of Israel will attack Israel and the Messiah will return again. Zechariah 12, verses 2 to 3 prophesies, Behold, I, that is God, Yahweh, am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Then in verse 10, Zechariah prophesies that after Israel is attacked, the divine Messiah whom Jews pierce will return to Israel and save them. Zechariah 12.10 prophesies, And I, that is God Yahweh, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, that is God, on him whom they have pierced, that is referring to God again, but this time the divine Messiah, Jesus, whom they crucified and pierced. They... The Jews will mourn for him, Jesus, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
You see, Jesus is not prophesizing anything new. He's just repeating Old Testament prophecy and gives it more details. So this is clear. Uh, in the end time, Israel will be attacked, there will be tribulation, and then Jesus will come back. Now, brothers and sisters, studying the end time is important. Jesus often talked about it because it reminds us that this world is going to perish. The world that is going to come is eternal. It reminds us to live for that world, not for this world. Because God is sovereign over the world, and he's sovereign over the history of the world. He will always protect his promises. He will always fulfill his prophecies. No matter how impossible it may seem back then or right now, God will someday fulfill all his prophecies. Now, in light of the end, how should we live in light of the end? Does what will happen in the end affect how we live now? It does. It does matter. But the problem is that different people have different responses toward the end time. I have noticed in the past that I myself have responded incorrectly to the end time. I have seen others who have not responded correctly to the end time. Studying and knowing the end time is supposed to make us eagerly desire for the return of Jesus. But in the past, I found myself and others not looking forward to the return of Christ. We're actually scared of the return of Christ. Why is that? Why is that sometimes we are scared of the return of Christ? Does any, has anybody here been afraid of the return of Christ? No? Good. <laughs> well, you're more, I guess you're more sanctified now. <laughs> so, praise God. But I have met people and I myself have experienced that. And there are many reasons for that. And one reason is because some Christians are not ready for the return of Christ. There is something in their lives that is still shameful. They're still in sin and they're not willing to surrender that to the Lord. So they're afraid that the Lord will return because they're afraid and, be, and ashamed to see him. And that's one of the reasons why people are afraid of the return of Christ. And brothers and sisters, if that is you today, I pray that you will not deceive, be deceived by the pleasures of sin. Sin never fulfills its promises. It will leave you empty, frustrated, and sad at the end. I pray that you will renew your heart. The Holy Spirit will renew your heart to see the great love of Jesus for you and see that living in obedience for Christ is far better than living in sin. Now, another reason why some Christians respond incorrectly to the end, of, to the end time, they don't desire for the return of Christ, is because they are fearful of the supernatural, massive, terrible judgment that Christ is going to give to the whole world at the end time. And the book of Revelation gives in detail the horrific judgments on the world by God. And so some Christians think that they will go through the tribulation, so they're afraid 
of the coming of Jesus. Frankly, they would rather Jesus come back after they die because they don't want to go through the tribulation. Now, people who believe that Christians will go through tribulation are called post-tribulationists. And I completely understand why they were afraid of the return of Christ if they think they have to go through this supernatural, massive, terrible judgment on the world. Uh, but I have good news. I, I think the, that interpretation is wrong. I believe that there are many verses in the Bible that teach Christians will not experience the tribulation. Only non-believers who become believers, especially Jewish believers, will experience the tribulation. But Christians will not experience the great tribulation, but they will be raptured from the world before the tribulation. And this is in verses like Revelation 3.10, which says, Because you, referring to the Christians in Philadelphia, have kept my word, that is, obey God's word, Jesus' word, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the world. Right? So he's saying, for those Christians, Jesus will keep them from the trial that is coming. And what is that trial? It's the trial of the tribulation that is described in the rest of the book of Revelation. And I believe that Revelation, uh, rapture is also taught in Matthew 24.4. And it's also taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, verse 17. And it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So I believe that Christians will not experience tribulation. Uh, there should be nothing that hinders us from desiring Christ to return. The Bible says that every Christian should have that desire that Christ will return soon. Second Peter 3.12 says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So I believe that we ought to desire and hasten the return of Christ. We should not be afraid of the return of Christ. We will not go through tribulation. And even in the Old Testament, God did not punish and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot, the last believer to get out. I believe that God is a righteous God. He will not supernaturally punish us with the wicked. He is a righteous God. Now, I know that there are those who disagree with me. They believe that Christians will go through tribulation. And uh, they believe that it's safer to teach and prepare Christians to face the Antichrist and the tribulation just in case it happens. And if it doesn't happen, then it doesn't matter because Christians will be raptured anyway. So to them, it's better to teach Christians to be over-prepared than to under-prepared. I understand why they would say that. Um, If pre-tribulation interpretation is incorrect, then I'm I'm thankful for their interpretation. I'm thankful for their over-preparation. So that's good. 
But my concern is that uh, if some Christians think that they will experience a tribulation, they will not desire the return of Jesus. So that is my concern. I know for some Christians, I, have, uh, I know some Christians, when they see the news that a technology will hasten the return of Jesus, they become paranoid and will work against that technology. They don't want Jesus to come back. Uh, for example, now there's a chip that can be implanted in a person's hand. And this person can use this chip to buy things. So some people think this is a fulfillment of Revelation 13, 17, which prophesies that in the end time, every person will have a mark of the beast. If they don't have this mark on their hand or their forehead, they cannot buy or sell. So some Christians think this is the coming of the Christ. So they, they become extremely fearful and paranoid. Some even try to isolate themselves and build bunkers to protect themselves. Of course, it is absolutely wise to prepare for emergencies, normal emergencies like financial crises and earthquakes. But to build bunkers and isolate ourselves is not the appropriate response to the end time. God wants all believers to be light and salt. He wants all believers to continue to engage our communities to share the gospel, to love people, and not to isolate ourselves and hide our light in a bushel. But if we understand that Christians will not go through the tribulation, then we can fully, eagerly embrace and long for the desire of Christ. And we can live correctly in light of the end time. God can, we don't need to be afraid of the tribulation. God can even use the tribulation to save our non-believing friends and families. There will be many people who will become Christians during the tribulation. So nothing should hinder our desire for the return of Christ. Now another reason why some Christians respond incorrectly to the end is because they think Jesus will come back really, really soon, like next week. And if Jesus is going to come back next week, what's the point of doing anything? <laughs> There's no point because he's going to come back next week and make everything, everything right. So the response is to be idle. You know, they isolate themselves and do nothing. And this is not living rightly in light of the end. Now, I, I totally believe that Jesus is going to come back soon. This is very clear. God has miraculously resurrected the nation of Israel in 1948 after it did not exist for 2,000 years. Nobody thought that this could happen. It was impossible. But it happened in 1948. No small nation like Israel has ever existed again after 2,000 years of not being exist, in existence. And the amazing thing is that even after they exist, the surrounding nations are still the enemies, just as the Bible prophesies. And what is only only thing that's missing is the temple. We need a temple for the end time. The Bible is clear that the temple must be there for Jesus to return, for the Antichrist to desecrate the temple. But guess what? There's actually an organization called the Temple Institute. 
they have a website. You could Google it, but it's blocked in, in uh, Indonesia. You have to use VPN to access it. I actually donate to this organization. But this organization is actually dedicated to the building of the temple. They're getting everything ready. They're training priests. They're getting all the uh, vessels ready right now. And we know that when the temple is built, Jesus will come back really soon. This is clear in the prophecy in Hosea 3, verses 4 to 5. It says, once the temple is built, Christ will come back. It prophesies that there will be many days that the Jews will not have a temple or priests, but after that, they will have temple. But guess what? The temple has not been built. And I don't know when it's going to be built. It could be today. It could be next year. It could be next decade. It could be next century. I don't know. I don't know when it will be built. I don't know when Jesus will return. It could be any time. It could be next decade or tomorrow or next century. But we need to live our lives in such a way that we can prepare for Jesus' return to be delayed. We need to live in a way that just in case he is delayed, we need to not be idle and keep on being busy for the work of the Lord. We should never be idle. And this is what the parable in the ten virgins teaches us in Matthew 25. The wise virgins are prepared for the delay of Jesus. We should never be idle. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be idle. We cannot isolate ourselves. We must continue to be busy in the work of God for his kingdom until Jesus returns. We must live correctly in response to the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your sovereign sovereignty and your faithfulness in fulfilling your prophecy. Even though it's, it looks so impossible right now, help us to live by faith, not by sight. You are faithful. Help us to live according to this per, eternal perspective. If there's any sin in our lives, forgive our sins. Strengthen us that we may desire the return of Christ. Help us to live correctly and prepare for his return. Help us to not be idle and serve you with passion, with desire that you will return one day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.